I would like to recover the original meaning of this verse. I would like to see it in its original context so that we can understand just how surprising it really is and just how amazing it should be. This morning, I want us to see five shocking truths about the love of God. Five shocking truths about the love of God. First, a shocking source. A shocking source. For God so loved. God loved. God loved. Let those two words sink in, if only for a moment. God loved. Those two words should have immediate shock value. Now, if you are not amazed at those two words, I dare say it is because you do not understand two things. You do not understand the nature of God, and you do not understand the nature of sin. We in America take the love of God for granted. Our first reaction is, well, of course God loves us. What's not to love? I mean, look at us. America expects God to be merciful. Frankly, the idea of God redeeming sinners surprises nobody. Have you ever noticed that when good things happen, the media does not question anything? But when an earthquake happens or a tsunami kills people, then we demand an answer. Mankind shakes his fist at the heavens and thunders out, how can a loving God do this? How could you do this to us, God? We deserve better than this God. We expect God to love us. We expect God to love the world. We feel entitled to the love of God. After all, that's what God does. God loves, right? After all, that's what the Bible says. God is love, does it not? True, I grant you that. But do you know what the Bible also says? The Bible also says, our God is a consuming fire. The Bible also says, God is holy, holy, holy. In order for us to see how shockingly great the love of God is, we must first consider the object of his love. We must see how staggeringly sinful we are. We must see how incredibly wicked we are. The amazing part about God's love is not that he himself loves. The amazing part is that God himself loves us. God loves us. God loves human beings. That in and of itself should shock us. Listen to how scripture describes us in our fallen state. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. James 4.4 calls us enemies of God. Romans 8.7 says we were hostile toward God. We human beings were dead, unrighteous sinners in cosmic rebellion against God. We were at war with God. We were enemies with God. 
We were hostile towards God. That's who we are as sinful, fallen human beings. And because of our sin, we are nothing less than sinners in the hands of an angry God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If we are not shocked by John 3.16, it is because we do not understand the wrath of God. It is because we do not feel the wrath of God. We do not see the wrath of God. We do not hear the wrath of God. It is because we do not fear the wrath of God. Romans 9.13 says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now the world gets so offended at this verse. The world gets so offended when they hear Esau I hated. But that is not the shocking part of this verse. If we really understand who we are as sinful human beings and who God is as God, then we would not be amazed that God hated Esau. We would be amazed that God loved Jacob. Oh, friends, do you know the God of Scripture? Do you know the God of the Bible? Beware of the God of Scripture. Do not take him lightly. Do not yawn at the God of John 3.16. You do so at your peril. So then the love of God ought to shock us. It ought to amaze us. It should stagger us that a God this holy could love a people this sinful. It should amaze us that the object of God's wrath is also the object of God's love. One of my friends in seminary told me this story, a true story, of one of the greatest examples of God's love. He grew up in Taiwan, and when he was in junior high, there was an orphan boy in his school who killed one of his classmates. He murdered him. And for that, the orphan boy went to prison. While the mother of the deceased boy would go and visit her son's murderer in prison. And she was a Christian. And she would go to this boy and preach the gospel to him. And the orphan boy believed the gospel, repented, and was saved through the ministry of the mother. Eventually, after he was released from prison, she adopted him as her own son. She adopted her son's murderer as her own son. This story of love moved the entire country of Taiwan. It was a powerful testimony of the gospel and of God's love for sinners. When you realize how undeserving we are of God's love, then all of a sudden God's love becomes amazingly glorious. You see, the shock value of this text matters. How you respond 
to this verse, John 3.16. How you respond to John 3.16 will tell you a lot about your relationship with God. How you respond to this verse will tell you whether you've been living your life by faith or living your life as a legalistic moralist. A healthy, vibrant Christian who is trusting God, loving God, resting in God, reads John 3.16 and responds, I am amazed that God loves me. I am amazed that I am a Christian. A true Christian is shocked at the love of God. A true Christian does not feel entitled to the love of God. They know they could never deserve the love of God. They know they could never merit the love of God. Not for a moment, not for a day, not for a week, not for a year, not for an eternity. But a legalist approaches this text differently. A legalist is someone trying to earn their way to heaven by their own good works. And sometimes, sometimes, Christians too can fall prey to a spirit of legalism. A legalistic person does not recognize the shock value of this verse. A legalist reads John 3.16 and says, well, of course God loves me. I've done everything that God has asked. I go to church. I give offering. I pray the prayers. I go to Bible studies. I do good works. I've done everything that God has asked of me. Of course God loves me. A Christian thinks, I owe God for his great love towards me. A legalist thinks, God owes me for my great love towards him. You see, here's the difference. For the Christian, there is no of course. So friends, I ask you this morning, of what spirit are you? Do you yawn? at John 3.16? Do you shrug your shoulders at John 3.16? Does John 3.16 still amaze you? Do you have a spirit of wonder at the love of God? Are you amazed that God loves you? How marvelous How wonderful, and my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Your response to this verse will tell you a lot about your relationship with God. Secondly, a shocking scope, a shocking scope. For God so loved the world. The casual American looks at this word world, cosmos in the Greek, And most commonly thinks it must mean every single person who has ever lived. Since God loves the world, God savingly loves every single person that has ever lived. Meaning everybody goes to heaven. Universal salvation for all. Now, to be sure, God does love all people in a general way. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, the Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. In one sense, it is right to say that all of mankind is an object of God's love, for we are created in his image. 
God does have a common love for all mankind, but does God love all people savingly? Does God love all people in such a way that everybody goes to heaven? Not if your name is Judas Iscariot. It is impossible for the word cosmos to mean that God saves every single person who has ever lived. It simply cannot mean that because it is qualified in the very same verse. World, cosmos, is specified. It is defined for us. Cosmos is qualified by the phrase, whoever believes in him. You could translate it like this. God so loved that all the believing ones should not perish. All the believing ones. You see, God may love every person in a general way, but God loves the believing ones in a specific way. God may love all people in a common way, but God loves the believing ones in a particular way, a deferential way, a distinguishing way. God does not love all people in the same way. Now again, the world gets so offended by that. Oh, how can you say that? But this we understand because instinctively we practice this. We practice deferential love. If you were to come up to me and say, I love all the children in this church. I serve in children's ministry and I love all the children in this church. And I would say to you, that's great. It's wonderful. It's precious to love all the children in the church because they are precious. But if you were to come up and say to me, I love all the children in this church exactly the same way that I love my own children. Well, I, and frankly, anybody who hears that would say, wait a minute, that's not quite right. There's something not quite right about that. There's something wrong about that. You see, you love your children and I love my children in a way that is distinct from how we love all the other children in the church. Instinctively, we understand distinguishing love because we practice it. We love our own more than we love those who are not our own. So then, cosmos does not mean that God savingly loves every single person who has ever lived. But then what does it mean? I'm going to argue that cosmos means that God loves all kinds of people from all over the world. God loves all races, all ethnicities of people from all over the world. God loves not just Jews, but also Gentiles. It means that Christ saves people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. Hendrickson calls this love an international love. God so loved internationally. God so loved all over this world. God desired to take some out of all kinds of people from the tapestry of humanity and weave them together with his son. Revelation 5.9 gives us a picture of what this looks like in eternity. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation that is from all over the world. 
That is John 3.16, according to heaven. You see, John 3.16 emphasizes the diversity of God's saving love, not the universality of God's saving love. Salvation is given not to all people without exception. Salvation is given to all believers without distinction, whether black or white, whether Jew or Gentile, whether Asian or Hispanic. Salvation is given to anyone and everyone who believes. The international love of God would have been amazing to Jesus' original audience. Remember in John 3.16, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees, of course, believe that as long as you were an Israelite, God saved you. As long as you were an Israelite, you were in the kingdom. As long as you were an Israelite, you were going to heaven. We have Abraham as our father, they would say. To the Pharisees, the love of God is simple. God loves Israel, but God does not love Gentiles. Leon Morris says, the Jew was ready enough to think of God as loving Israel, but no passage appears in which any Jewish writer maintains that God loved the world. It is a distinctly Christian idea that God's love is wide enough to embrace all people. His love is not confined to any national group or spiritual elite. The heart of God is not just for Israel. The heart of God is for the nations. This was God's plan all along. Let us trace the unfolding plan of God throughout Scripture. In Adam and Eve, God blesses a couple. In Noah, God blesses a family. In Abraham, God blesses a family to bless other families. In Moses, God blesses a nation of families. But in Christ, in the new covenant, God blesses a family of nations. Such is the international love of God. Thirdly, a shocking statement, a shocking statement. Everything in this verse points to the exclusivity of the gospel. John writes, God so loved the world. Now again, when most casual people read this verse, they think the word so means so much. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. And since God loves the world so much, this must mean that everybody goes to heaven. However, that is not what this word means. The word so means in this way or in this manner. How did God love the world? He loved it like so. He loved it like this. He loved it in this way, in this manner, in this fashion. You could translate it like this. It is in this way that God loved the world. God gave his only son. Therefore, contrary to popular belief, this word so is not universal and all-inclusive. Rather, it is exclusive and particular. God loved the world 
Not in any which way you can imagine. God loved the world in a very specific way. In his son. There's only one way to experience the saving love of God. In this way. In his son. The word only and only son, again, points to the exclusivity of the gospel. In essence, the word means one of a kind, one and only, unique. God gave his one of a kind son, his unique son, his only son, his one son. There is only one son of the father and there is only one savior of the world. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ alone is the Savior of the world. So we must understand that John 3.16 is actually not an invitation to believe. This is not an altar call. This is a statement of fact. A statement of reality. A statement of truth. A concrete statement. A definitive statement. Jesus is saying to the world, there is only one way to eternal life through the one God who has given his one son. In a world full of pluralism, we have the definitive statement of exclusivity. In a world full of polytheism, we have the definitive statement of monotheism. Now people are surprised or even angered when they hear you say there is only one way to salvation, only one way to God, one and only one. Now, some people might say, oh, you Christians, your opinion of God's love is so limited. It's so strict. If I were God, I wouldn't just send one savior. I would send many saviors. I would send a hundred saviors, a thousand saviors. I would send a million saviors. If God were truly loving why did God not send more than one Savior? Brethren, that is not the right question. The question is not, why didn't God send more Saviors? The question is, why did God even send one? Why did God even send a Savior at all? Because he loved because God loved. R.C. Sproul says, are you one of those that gets angry when you hear there's only one way to God? The question is not, why is there only one? The question is, why should there be one? Why is there one at all? Well, God loved the world enough to send the only one. Fourthly, a shocking sacrifice. A shocking sacrifice. John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In, one sense, in what sense did God give his only son? Well, the context gives us the answer. John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I was very thankful that we read this passage earlier from the book of Numbers. This is referencing the book of Numbers that we read earlier in the service. 
And it's very important to see the overall structure of these verses. Notice the parallelism between verses 14 and verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The end of verse 16, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you see the parallel phrases? Do you see the wording that's almost exactly identical? These are two lines that give the same idea, two lines which are mutually interpreting. And of course you know that if the last half of the sentences are parallel, so also are the first. This means that he gave his only son in verse 16 is parallel to the son of man be lifted up in verse 14. God gave his only son when the son of God was lifted up on a cross. God gave his only son when God handed his son over to the cross. God gave his son over to death, even death on a cross. God gave his son as a sacrifice for sinners. Prophet Isaiah gave his perspective of John 3.16 700 years earlier. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, he wrote, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Brethren, do you hear what this is saying? God so loved the world that he afflicted his only son. God so loved the world that he pierced his only son. God so loved the world that he chastened his only son. God so loved the world that he scourged his only son. Do you hear what this is saying, brothers and sisters? For God so loved the world that he crushed his only son. He crushed his son. God so loved you, O Christian, that he crushed his only son for you. God crushed him. He crushed him. He crushed him. The sacrifice should be staggering to us. I just have to say that I love you all as my brothers and sisters in Christ. I love you all as the body of Christ. I love you all as my friends. But I could never imagine giving up one of my children for you. I could never imagine giving up one of my little girls for you. I could never imagine giving up my son for you. And you're all my friends. Just imagine, when God gave his son, we were not his friends. We were his enemies. The cost of this sacrifice is unspeakable. And it is the price of this sacrifice which speaks to the power of it. 
The Apostle Paul tells us that this sacrifice should give us the utmost confidence that no matter what happens, we will never be separated from his love. Romans 8.38 says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. One author tells us the story of a young Christian in Vietnam. He writes, I was ministering in Vietnam in 1971, and one of my interpreters was Hien Pham, an energetic young Christian. Hien and I traveled the length of the country and became very close friends before I returned home. We did not know if our paths would ever cross again. 17 years later, I received a telephone call. Immediately, I recognized Hien's voice. And he soon told me his story. Shortly after Vietnam fell, Hien was imprisoned on accusations of helping the Americans. His jailers tried to indoctrinate him against democratic ideals and the Christian faith. He was restricted to communist propaganda and French or Vietnamese, and the daily deluge of Marx and Engels began to take its toll. Maybe, he thought, I have been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. So Hien determined that when he awakened the next day, he would not pray anymore or think of his faith. The next morning, he was assigned to the dreaded chore of cleaning the prison latrines. As he cleaned out a tin can overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what seemed to be English printed on one piece of paper. He hurriedly grabbed it, washed it, and after his roommates had retired that night, he retrieved the paper and read the words, Romans chapter 8. Trembling, he began to read. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For I am convinced that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Ken wept. He knew his Bible and knew that there was not a more relevant passage on the verge of surrender. Oh, Christian, are you on the verge of surrender here this morning? Do you feel lost, hopeless? Have you suffered so much that you often cry out, how long, oh Lord, how long? Have you gone through such trials that you doubt whether or not God even loves you anymore? Have you ever prayed, do you even love me, God? Well, Christian, John 3.16 is telling you, doubt no more. Doubt no more. If you ever doubt God's love, look at the cross. Look at Calvary. Look at Golgotha. God's love is not some vague, sentimental feeling, but a love of sacrifice, a love of cost. It was a love demonstrated once and for all at the cross. It is a love so deep, so wide, so long, so amazing that he would give his only son for you. And no matter what happens, you will never be separated from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Never. Fifth and last, a shocking salvation. A shocking salvation. 
Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Remember, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, who for his whole life has believed that you get to heaven by works, by merit, by obedience to the law, by keeping the law. You earn your way to heaven. But in John 3.16, Jesus takes the entire system of works righteousness and turns it on its head. You don't get to heaven by working. You get to heaven by believing. Faith in the Son of God, faith alone saves you. Jesus is telling this self-righteous, top-of-the-top Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, with all your good works, all your legalism, all your law-keeping, all your merit, you will perish. But the vilest sinner who believes will go to heaven. Faith alone in the Son of God. Can you see at that moment Nicodemus' jaw just drop? For those who believe eternal revelry, for those who do not believe eternal wrath, for those who believe eternal joy, for those who do not believe eternal judgment, for those who believe eternal celebration, for those who do not believe eternal condemnation. There is more happiness and horror in this verse than we could ever imagine. There is more gravity and gladness in this verse than we could ever imagine. Those who do not believe will perish. Now you could translate this word to destroy. Now to be clear, to destroy is not to be annihilated out of existence as if you cease to exist once you die. If there is anything obvious about the nature of hell in the Bible, it is that hell is eternal conscious torment. And that is exactly what this word perish or destroy means. But I would like to take a little bit of a deeper look at this word for a moment. This word perish or destroy occurs in something called the middle voice in the Greek. It's a little bit technical, but stick with me. I think you'll see that this is important. The main thing to understand is that Greek has three voices. Active, middle, and passive. There's an active voice, a passive voice, and a middle voice. Now in English, we have two voices, active and passive. So for example, in English, the active voice, Billy brushes his sister's teeth. In English, the passive voice, Billy's teeth were brushed. And in the middle voice, the middle voice speaks of an action which is reflexive, an action which is performed upon yourself. So the middle voice would be, Billy brushes his own teeth. His own teeth. Active, middle, passive. So if this verb perish or destroy were translated in the active voice, it would be, whoever believes will not destroy others. Now, that's obviously not what it's saying. That's obviously a terrible translation. If it were in the passive voice, it would read, whoever believes will not be destroyed. And this is the way that most people understand this verse. And this is not a theologically incorrect statement. In fact, it is true, because God is the one who carries out eternal punishment. But that is actually not what John 3.16 is emphasizing. 
John 3.16 gives this word perish in the middle voice. The middle voice where the action is performed upon yourself. The action is reflexive. So it actually reads, whoever believes will not destroy himself. If you do not believe in Jesus, then you destroy yourself. You are doing the action to yourself. You are performing the action upon yourself. John uses the middle voice to tell us that those who do not believe are personally responsible for their final destination. Men are not simply perishing because they are some helpless victims of total depravity. As if they really, really, really wanted to believe, but they're forced not to. No. They chose this. They chose this for themselves. Unbelievers are responsible for rejecting God. They chose the darkness, and in so doing, they destroy themselves. C.S. Lewis says, the damned are in one sense successful. Rebels to the end. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. The Puritan Thomas Brooks says, every unbeliever is a self-tormentor, a self-destroyer. He carries hell and executioner in his own bosom. Those who do not believe destroy themselves. If you're not a believer here this morning, John 3.16 is telling you that you are personally responsible. You have heard the gospel. You have heard of the shocking love of God. And just know that if you will not believe, then you rebel not just against the justice of God, you rebel against the love of God. The love of God is awesome. It is amazing. It is marvelous. And know that the love of God is reaching out to you. It is because of your own sin that you dig in your heels and you say, I will not be loved. I refuse to be loved by God. God so loved the world, but I will not let God love me. You're responsible if you reject the love of God. Do not destroy yourself. Marvel at God's love. Wonder at God's love. Don't take it for granted anymore. If you're a believer here this morning, I just want to say, sometimes the simplest truths are the most profound ones. Oh, Christians here this morning, you are loved by God. You are loved deeply by God. We tend to judge whether it's been a good day or a bad day based on what happened that day. Today's a good day because things went well at work. Today's a good day because the kids behaved well today. Today's a good day because I didn't argue with my spouse. Brothers and sisters, a good day has to go beyond these things. Today is a good day because God loves 
you. Today is a good day because you are loved deeply by God. And that will never change no matter what happens. In closing, one of my professors in seminary once told me the story of when he pastored a church during the Persian Gulf War. And one of the members of his congregation was an F-16 fighter pilot during the Persian Gulf War. And when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, he was sent into Baghdad. And the fighter pilot showed his pastor the internal video feed from his flight into combat. And you could hear him breathing in flight. And apparently it sounded something like this. And all of a sudden you hear this beep, 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 beep. And that was a sign that someone had locked in on him, that he had a missile aimed right at him. And all of a sudden, you see the pilot veer to avoid the missile, and you can hear him breathing again. And the pastor asked him, what were you thinking in that moment? And the pilot said to him, you think I was thinking the most profound thoughts, but all I kept thinking was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Brothers and sisters, Jesus loves you, this you know, for John 3.16 tells you so. Let us pray. Father, who's in Thank you. We are so undeserving. We deserve wrath. We deserve justice. We deserve condemnation. We deserve hell. Thank you for your great love, a love which will not let us go. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.